Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And it's uh, four days from my birthday. Happy birthday, dude. Oh, wait a minute. Uh, three days from my birthday. I'm looking at... We have nice. the uh, calendar yeah, day Yeah, you off know when problem. this is going to publish. Oh, no, I've already fixed it on my side, just so you know. <laughs> okay. Don't fix it again. I won't fix it again. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, this is the last published show from NDC Oslo. Yeah. We're about to wrap it up. We did get a few complaints from NDC London because we shot, I think, 10 shows. Well, I think that was where we made the decision to drop down to one show show a week, but we'd already had all these shows booked. So, so it just happens. It's just as how it is. But yeah. I don't know. I've had a nice NDC because we've only had to record a few shows. Right. We've been yeah. able to do some more stuff. And, you know, I did a talk. You did a talk. Like, right. We get to do more stuff. And maybe we can go share a whiskey tonight or something. Well, I, I just talk crazy talk. That's Frank, just crazy talk. Knows. Uh, just to catch you up on something I've been doing lately. Yes. Now, this is coming out in August, but it's June 21st right now in Oslo. Okay. But I've been working on this very cool demo mm-hmm. for uh, Michelle LaRue Bustamante for oh, yeah. Alliance. Uh, it's a demo of Policy Server, which is an authorization server. That's the uh, um, Dominic Byer and uh, yeah. Brock Allen. And Brock right? Allen, yeah. And Policy Server is really cool, but the demos are kind of, you know, huh. They're oh, um, demos built by security people? Yeah. Okay. Right. So we, we sexed it up a little bit with some Star Wars stuff. So I love it. Basically, the, the goal is to help Luke Skywalker blow up the Death Star, and the actors are Obi-Wan and Luke and R2-D2. Nice. Uses policy server to grant them the permissions they need, and it's a whole lot of fun. And it ends with the Death Star exploding. So Because that's what we look for in a security plan. Absolutely. <laughs> but you know what's interesting is that Star Wars wouldn't work if it weren't for the security flaws. Uh, that's like true. That yeah. whole soap opera is, is it, all about is exploiting a, security Right. Flaws. There's a data hack up front yeah. from Rogue One that results in the Death right. Star data, and they figure out the weakness in the, the security exactly. of the Death Star. It's all security flaws. It's all security. It's, it's a nice security to know that play. In, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, they couldn't do security either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so true. It's awesome. All right. Well, that's what I got. Roll the music for Better Know Framework. All right, man. What do you got? Well, you know, I love to find ways that we can engage with our kids uh, to help them learn how to program. Sure. And mine are in their 20s and just not interested. Yeah. My, mine never were interested. Yeah. But I never really had anything, you know, like the, some, some of the stuff that's out now, like Coding Game. And this is C-O-D-I-N-G-A-M-E. So they, it's not... They, code, they laid the Gs together. They laid the Gs together. One G. Uh, CodingGame.com. And this is a really well done website. I'm hmm. just blown away by the quality. First of all, the quality of the site when you're just looking at it. But then when you start, this, you're, you know, the, you're right. There's little subtle motions and things. This is a beautiful website. It's a beautiful website. And I started the whole you know overview process when they take you through the, the coding editor and what you have to do. And ultimately, you just have to get a little bit of code to do the logic to make some spectacular-looking graphical game uh, work. Right. And that's exactly what it's all about. But you don't have to deal with all the graphic stuff. You just deal with the logic. You know, nice. It's just simple. And, and it's so much more instantly gratifying for kids 
you know, other than, you know, going through a series of stale JavaScript examples where, yeah. you know, whatever. Not only JavaScript in here, coding game, but every language. You can pick what language you want to learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's really it's, neat. It's so well done. I'm just very, very impressed with these guys. So that's what I got. Codinggame.com. Nice one. Who's talking to us, Richard? Grabbed a comment off the show 1203. That's going all the way back to October 2015 mm -hmm. when we talked to Michael Van Sickle about programming in Go. I know go. We're, we're talking about different programming languages today, and I yeah. thought, you know, we talked once upon a time we talked about Go. Go is awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. And more importantly, it has a there's a great comment here. It's from Roland Tepp. And admittedly, it's a comment from four years ago. Wow. Where he says, I like very much some of the latest shows, you know, four okay, years ago. Four years ago, yeah. Where you've been discussing various newish programming languages like Go and Elixir. Newish. Newish. Yeah. Uh the scene of programming languages seems to be living through some sort of renaissance lately. Mm. And I think it's just that they were more visible then. Yeah. Uh, and there's a whole new crop of interesting languages that have either recently or are about to reach their 1.0 milestones. And I'd love to hear more about some of these other languages as well, including Rust. 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 Never heard of it. Not going to talk about it. No, nah, well, then we'll talk about it. Ceylon. It's spelled like the T. Okay. Julia, Nim, Kotlin, and D all come to mind. Well, hmm. See if we can deliver on any of that, but uh, yeah, we'll give that a shot. Yeah, we will. Well, we won't, but our guests will. Yes, because what do we know? What do we know? Yeah, we're just a couple of dumb programmers. <laughs> That's it. C sharp guys. Uh, so, Roland, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code by, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on Facebook. We publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, you'll get a copy of Music to Code by. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We rust-proof them. <laughs> so they don't there's got to be a library called WD-40 in there it's somewhere, right? Be. <laughs> there must be. <laughs> well, maybe Ashley knows about that. Let's introduce him. Ashley Mannix is an engineer at Data Lust in sunny Australia working on Seek. Is that the way to pronounce S-E-Q? That's it. Seek, a structured log server built in .NET and Rust. He's also part of the Rust Languages Libs team, working on the standard library and other central APIs. Welcome, welcome to the show. Hey Ashley. guys, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for coming out. Yeah, no so here had we go. a good show. Yeah, it's yeah. been great. A real whirlwind of Oslo. Yeah, just yeah. about ready to fly home. The last time we saw you was in Sydney. Yeah, at NDC Sydney. Yeah, I was yeah. going back. It was a slightly shorter trip over there. Yeah, yeah a little for you. Yeah, well, that's right. It's <laughs> funny how these two hemispheres are the same size, aren't they? Yeah. Wow. How's it work? <laughs> yeah, it's not uh, round. It's a rock. Yeah, it's a big rock. Yeah. It's so, a long way. So all I know about Rust is that uh, there's an implementation for WebAssembly. Yeah. That's all I know. I haven't looked into Rust at all. What can you tell us about it? Right. From um, a C-sharp developer or VB's perspective. So from a C-sharp developer's perspective, um, Rust is a language that allows us to safely manage the memory in our programs without needing this big runtime and garbage collector. Okay. So rather than going the managed memory model, but still safe. Yeah, so it is. it's still managed memory it's just not managed by some other thing in the runtime okay is it reference so, counting so you can do reference counting so the thing about rust is that it tries to um, find these abstractions that we've built up over time in order to protect ourselves from the fact that we're bad at writing software mm. and eliminate those at runtime so the way that rust keeps memory safe 
is by checking everything for you at compile time. Okay. So mm. some people think of, of the Rust compiler as like pair programming with your computer. Nice. Mm. Where your computer is part of the pair. Yeah. Yeah, where it, it points out the things that you're doing that it doesn't like, uh, and then you fix those at compile time rather than having uh, issues at runtime. Interesting. So it's not just syntax errors and things like that that the compiler's looking at, but it's actually going to tell you if you've coded a memory leak. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, because I was like, static typing's fine, right? That's We validate, hey, you said this was a number and you're putting a string in it. Yeah. But it's, it's actually going to read through my code and say, hey, you allocated this and you never deallocated it? Yeah, so Rust takes that static typing beyond just um, the things that you would typically write, the, the classes and the structs and the, mm. and the mm -hmm. things that you pass through to methods, and it takes that static typing further to looking at um, the validity of that type its lifetime. So mm. in .NET, we don't need to worry about that because uh, at runtime, there's this thing in the runtime, the garbage collector, that makes sure that so long as we're able to look at a piece of data, it's going to be there and it's going to be valid. Yeah. From yeah, but once that data falls out of scope, it's just marked as, you know, the main, main thing in my mind that that does for you is as, as soon as a chunk of code falls out of scope, anything that's been allocated to it is just marked as deleted. Yeah. And sometime later, the, the, the garbage collector will go along and actually yeah. well, clean the, it up. Well, that's the difference between the stack variables and heap variables, right? I mean, heap variables are, you could call them uh, class-level variables or app-level variables, so they stick around, whereas something in a method that you declare is obviously just going to go out of scope and you don't need to yeah. worry about it. Yeah. But it's those heap variables that are the problem, right? Yeah, so there's, there's different semantics in .NET between stuff that's on the stack and stuff that's on the heap. So when it's on the stack, it has a short lifetime. When it's yeah. on the heap, it has a long lifetime. Mm -hmm. In Rust, um, we capture that concept explicitly through types. So lifetimes are little types um, that follow your data around and they make sure that it's valid at compile time rather than mm -hmm. having different semantics between values that live in different spaces. Right. So you're declaring a, a lifetime then? So they're a bit funny. Lifetimes kind of appear out of nowhere mm -hmm. um, from the compiler. They just kind of, they pop into being. And then... <laughs> they're um, like quarks. How do you spell yeah. that? <laughs> that's, yeah. Oh, that, that's, uh, that's, that's P-H-W-U-R-T. <laughs> w, yeah, U-R-T. That's pretty good. how juicy it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you don't, you don't have to create lifetimes. Rust kind of pulls them out of out of the, uh, the background. Mm -hmm. And then they follow you um, around as you use your variables and they make sure that you use them correctly and it knows when things go out of scope and so then it cleans them up on the spot mm -hmm. rather than putting them in a big garbage pile for the, the GC to come and clean up later and for you. And you don't have any kind of dispose pattern or finalized pattern? You don't. So there is. Oh, okay. um, there's a finalized pattern. It's called drop. So okay. in Rust, drop looks more like dispose but it behaves more like finalize hmm. so in .NET we manually dispose some resources mm -hmm. uh, when we're done with them uh, and that's up to us to do that so we have a using scope right. so we, we use some value that's temporary and then outside of that using block our, our dispose code is called mm -hmm. that might mean that some unmanaged resources get cleaned up yep. it might mean that some buffer that we've leased from a pool gets returned to it Things like that. Not so, that I can remember the last time I had an unmanaged resource. Yeah. Like yeah. that used to be a big deal. 
I guess, 10 plus years ago. Yeah, we were yeah like calm stuff. Yeah, yeah when, when did this just stop happening? Like, I know, I remember, mm. and, I'm, and I'm, you know why it's important, but it's like, wow, how long has it well, been? Well, all that GDI stuff was all calm, yeah, right? So yeah. then we don't have to deal with that anymore. But no. in fact, but finalize, what I know about the finalized pattern is that the finalizers execute on a low priority background thread in .NET. Is it a similar deal in So Rust? it's a little different. So if you think of the finalize concept as letting you plug your own um, reclamation code into the safe memory management system, the, mm -hmm. the GC that we have, in Rust we have the concept of drop, which lets us plug um, our own code into its safe memory management system. So mm. drop is called when a value goes out of scope rather than on a, a low-priority background okay. thread. But it's that same idea of having some block of code that you write mm. that is executed on your behalf when a value goes out of scope that you don't call manually. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. Dispose, we call that manually. Right. Yeah. But you could, right? I mean, one of the problems with uh, big objects in .NET is that the garbage collector could kick in at an inconvenient time, right? Sure. So you don't want to let big, you know, objects get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. You want to manage them and dispose them uh, when they get to a to a size that isn't going to interrupt your processing, hmm. right? So can you do it uh, intentionally? Uh, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. So in Rust. Um, it's, it's kind of funny that the pattern that we use to uh, manually dispose an object is that we pass ownership of that object into a, a function called drop. Mm -hmm. And so what drop does is it just takes ownership of that value and then it immediately goes out of scope. Okay. And then that code will get called to drop it. All right. I, thought I, I was under the impression from what you said before that drop was something that happened that you didn't, you know, you didn't specifically call it, but you can is what you're saying. You can indirectly, yeah. Indirectly. So because Rust tracks um, ownership, so we don't have a heap where we stick objects and they're owned by the GC and we just reference those around as we feel like. Mm. In Rust, everything has one single owner. We track it as it moves through our program. And so we know the one um, place from which that object is, is owned. And so when we pass ownership into drop, it then becomes responsible for calling that code. So... If I can back up just for a bit, um, is having a runtime a real problem? And why? why get rid of it. Yeah, why get rid of it? Why, why not have a runtime? Why, what's the benefit that you get when you don't have a runtime? Yeah, so to kind of turn that around and start with what the benefits of having a runtime are, mm -hmm. what we get from C Sharp is that um, we have portable code that we can carry around to places we can cross-compile very easily because yeah. somebody else has done the really hard work of compiling that runtime for the various platforms that .NET supports. Right. But supporting new platforms means that runtime needs to, like there's a lot of code underneath what you write mm -hmm. that sure. needs to be supported on new platforms. With Rust, because it does have a runtime, it's just a very, very small one. I see. Because um, like C has a runtime as well. Mm -hmm. Sure. So it just doesn't do the memory management. Yes, that's saying. right. So because it's so small, it's possible to run Rust in um, like embedded scenarios where you have a little microcontroller. It's got four kilobytes of memory or right. something. Okay. Like you can you can take it to places where you wouldn't be able to run a, a full runtime like yeah. .NET. 
Is, and is that where Rust is used mostly in micro devices? So it has um, a pretty strong following in embedded devices. Mm -hmm. It's also finding popularity in network services in the cloud, for instance, where you want to limit your resource usage because you can tie CPU time and memory to dollars. Sure, sure yeah. When you can, you have like a much lower low watermark for um, usage, mm. then it's possible to save money by writing code in a, in a language with a, a simpler runtime. That, well, and I appreciate right. if you're building a logging tool like, like Seek, that it's never anybody's priority to log. You know, yeah. and people get pretty grumpy if, why is the app so slow? The logger, you know, mm. you're going to lose that fight every time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's one of the constraints that we have to deal with is that logging from um, a resource allocation perspective is it's pretty well second pretty class. Pretty much the lowest priority. Yeah, we talk about um, Seek running on tins of beans in, in <laughs> people's, I love people's it. environments. That's awesome. So, yeah, so like a can of beans with an, an yeah. Ethernet cable in it. There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so that's what I only gave you half a cat five. I gave you a cat 2.5 cable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's and right. You're, plug this into your can of beans. Off you go. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not even a nice can of beans. It's just yeah, you know, raw tomato, <laughs> no cheese or anything. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I, I like that mindset. This is like I'm going to consume as little as possible while yeah. still giving you good logging. Yeah, and so that's what we have in in Seek. So um, we introduced Rust into Seek at the start of 2018 after being uh, very much a Windows product mm -hmm. built on eSent. So we had some issues with eSent where being tied to Windows, we couldn't really see into it. So when we had issues with eSent, we would, um, it would be very tricky to figure out why. And it wasn't really a great use case for Seek where we have these buckets of diagnostic data that appear at say the front of a stream, right. and then they're deleted from the back, they sort of shift over time, mm. where we send is this B tree on disk, you'd be rebalancing that tree all the time, we'd right. be churning through it. Mm. Yeah, and so your structures then cause a lot of overhead. Yeah. The, uh, B trees aren't great for massive ads, it's just not their strength. No, they're, they're better for the kind of random writes and deletes. Yeah. But, Log logs don't change no. after you write and them. And they tend to be sequential because they yes. tend to be time series. It would be, be kind of crazy if you change a log after you've logged it. It wouldn't uh, really yeah. be a log then, would no, it? No, it wouldn't. <laughs> no. So um, trying to just imagine sort of what this, you know, what coding looks like um, in Rust. So I get that the, the compiler is a lot smarter in, you know, telling you, oh, you missed this there, you missed that there. How much extra code... Do you have to, an extra thought do you have to give to memory management yourself in Rust? A fair bit more. Hmm. Yes. So um, something that I think trips up a lot of people when they, they first look at Rust, especially coming from, say, .NET or JavaScript. Sure. Fully managed in memory environments. Yeah. Is that suddenly there's, there's all this extra syntax that you have to work with, hmm. all of this extra fluffing around that you have to do in order to write things that you've never had to think about before. Right. So... And is that specifically around creating type, uh, creating variables and destroying them, like memory management related stuff? So a lot of it's around lifetimes. So okay. in Rust lifetimes are types, you have to carry them around as generic type parameters. Mm -hmm. um, it can be easy to end up in a place where they don't line up for some reason and then mm -hmm. you get these um, 
previously very confusing but now quite helpful um, compiler errors around those. And so it feels like a bit of ceremony having to explicitly talk about the lifetime of data mm-hmm. when coming from C Sharp, we never really have to think about it because right. um, like in the, even the majority of, of .NET apps that I've written uh, in the past in consulting where you know, they might be fairly high, high load apps, um, the memory management has never been an issue. We've never had to think too hard about sure. it because there's always something like a database on the other end that dwarfs the cost of yeah. some link statement. Yeah, right. So that, there is extra work in Rust. It, it's a fairly methodical process of writing. So I like to think of Rust, writing Rust as a language that doesn't optimize the time it takes to bootstrap a, a new code base if you're writing a prototype. Sure. It's a language that optimizes... The, um, the cost of moving from one confidently working state to a new confidently working state. Hmm. And that's that kind of long-term maintainability is what it focuses on. That makes sense. Yeah. I didn't expect to talk about memory management quite this long, but it occurs to me that it's one thing to mark a chunk of memory as dropped, free. The real question is, when does it get used again? And I mean, I'm now conditioned to think in terms of garbage collection, hmm. which is not just, you know, you have memory marked as deleted, but that you actually reorganize generationally the memory that you are consuming so that you have big blocks of memory free to allocate out again. Mm. Does, I, I can't imagine Rust does anything like that because that's, that's garbage collecting. Mm. It's the kind of system you could build on top of Rust. Right. Yeah, it, it doesn't do that itself. It's mm-hmm. interesting. So Rust has, it uses an allocator behind the scenes. So something that you would use in C or C++. Right. Uh, Jay Malik is in, in his example of an allocator. It has its own allocator as well. Mm. And they have their own techniques that they use for dividing up memory in your in your program right. in a way that it can make sure that it's able to give you enough space for the data that you're you're asking for when you ask for it. So you don't end up creating you know, a, a massive buffer and then you create another one and you've got this little tiny little bit space, of space. Little gap. Between. That's exactly yeah, what I was thinking about. you can't about. use, yeah. yeah. It gets lost. Yeah. So, so if I'm writing a method, let's say, and I need to create some variables or I need to create an object or something like it, it is an object-oriented language, right? No. So Rust no. is not object-oriented. Interesting. Oh, is yes. it functional? It has functional elements in it. It's more functional than it is not functional. So kind of like JavaScripty. Um. Yeah. There's there's influences of JavaScript okay. and influences of Ruby and influences of Haskell. Okay. And influences of C so sharp. For, forget about objects then. Let's say I got to create an array. Mm-hmm. All right. And I create an array and I use it in this method or function. Do I have to specifically drop it at the end of the function, or is Rust going to know enough at compile time to put those things in the actual you know, bytecode or whatever happens yeah. after the language. So Rust knows enough to do that. That's one of its that's cool. It's things that it does for you. Hmm. Um, and so it actually does that in a way that's more sophisticated than .NET does, say, where um, typically we'll work with classes and the GC is responsible for cleaning them up. Hmm. But when you're working with structs, then um, copies of those are made. And so there's no real way to know when the single logical version of that right. is ready to clean up. Mm-hmm. You're talking about value types versus reference types. Yes. In, in yes. Media. So um, I like to describe Rust as .NET value types with special superpowers. Nice. <laughs> I so, like that. 
Yeah, so back in, back in the days of working on, say, um, web apps in .NET, one of the guiding principles that we always have was never write structs. Right, yeah. right. Don't use them. You don't mm. need them. They're too weird. Yeah. There are too many Cause trouble. Guns. They're yeah. tough to debug with. Like, yeah. Right. yeah. Because they feel a little second class. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, in Rust, it is value types. And so you get the benefits of working with value types, which are you don't have to worry about GC. There isn't this deferred cost mm. that's in, um, associated with creating value right. types. Yeah. But you don't have those same limitations that you do in .NET with working with them. So Rust tracks ownership of that one value type as it goes. It knows when it goes out of scope, and so it'll clean your array up for you. And so, so that would be like a stack variable. But what about heap variables that you allocate at the application level? Obviously, those are going to go away when your application goes away. Right? Yeah, right. But if, and if, but if you want to free up those resources during execution, you can drop them and recreate them, perhaps. So long as it's valid for you to do that, yeah. yeah. So that's where reference counting comes in as an example. So if you have mm. some long-lived value, uh, and it's not really easy to describe yeah. how, who owns that value or when right. it should go out of scope, because say you have some, um, some shared service, you're writing a, a web app, and each request is its own distinct um, scope of yeah. execution. They all need to access that service. Who owns the service? Right. Who knows? Right. So you can use reference counting to allocate that value on the heap, mm. uh, and then each uh, request that comes in gets a copy, increments the reference count, yep. and when their um, reference goes out of scope, then drop will decrement the reference count, mm-hmm. and it'll get cleaned up at the end of your app when Got there are it. no more requests that can. Uh, well, that's a, it. Doesn't sound like there's too much ceremony. What kind mm-hmm. of ceremony are you talking about then that we don't? So for anyone that's, that's tried to pick up Rust um, and tried to write something like a linked list, for example. Okay. Uh, this is something that's fairly, fairly trivial to do in .NET mm-hmm. because we have... Are you have, talking about a recursive yeah, function? Yeah. So a structure where you have nodes that are laid out and each node references the next node in the yeah, list and, right. say, the previous node in the list. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have this cycle of ownership right. between these nodes. Rust makes that tricky to describe out of the box hmm. because um, because ownership is kind of tracked in this top-down fashion. Yeah. You don't have a tree structure. You have a list structure. Hmm. It's, it's difficult to describe that. And so people run into issues from that point of view mm. where what you really need to do is try and think of the the problem that you're trying to solve in a, in a Rust-like way like you do with any language. Sure, you really have to learn the, the idioms and strengths of the language. Mm. But, I mean, the only strength I've really heard so far here is memory efficiency and size and executional reliability. Anything else? Like, why would you pick Rust? Well, memory safety and executional reliability and size are... With it. Big, yeah. big deals. <laughs> is there, any, is there anything benefits. else? Uh, it's a very modern language. Mm-hmm. So if you're writing high-level apps in Rust, mm-hmm. it gives you great tools for modeling those apps. So mm-hmm. enums, for instance. You know enums from C Sharp? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, they're basically just like a, an int value. You can have one of a number of variants. Yep. Enums in Rust are a bit more powerful. They're more like in F Sharp where you can have different variants with different types in them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you match on those, and you have to match exhaustively on them so there's no default case fall-through yeah. style issues with switch blocks that right. you, you have in .NET. 
even though that's getting patched up in C Sharp. Is it eight? Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, which is nice. But it has all these nice modern functional features that make it possible to model your programs in a very rich way. That's really nice if you're working on, mm-hmm. on high-level apps. Now, sure. It still feels to me like this is a back-end language rather than a front-end language, or am I, am I projecting? Mm. Would you agree? Like, is it, do you tend to use this more on the back-end or sort of UI-less bits of code? Yeah, so we, we do um, get the best benefit from Rust in Seek mm-hmm. by using it to build our storage engine, right. which is about mm. as far from the front-end as we can possibly yeah, right. get. Sure. Um, we also have headless network services written in it. Right. As a front-end language for WASM, um, supposedly it is quite nice. I haven't actually personally used it right. for that myself. But WASM? For WebAssembly. Yes, WebAssembly. Uh, WebAssembly. That's WASM. what the kids are calling it, WASM? Yeah, yeah calling it WASM. Maybe, WASM. maybe maybe in Australia that's what they call it. Yeah, right. we, yeah we call it's it WASM. It's Coriolis effect. They add <laughs> extra sounds to simple things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this was originally a C-sharp app. You added Rust later in the game? That's right, yeah. So, so it's we, both. We wrote um, Seek in C Sharp, mm-hmm. where the lower level layers of Seek weren't owned by us. So, Ascent mm. would have been written in C. Okay. So, what we've effectively done is replaced C that we didn't own with right. Rust code that we do own. Nice. All right. Although, just looking at some syntax for Rust, it's C ish. It is, yes. Mm. So, it's playing in the same space as C and C. So, mm-hmm. developers that are familiar with C will look at Rust and see concepts that they've had to learn scars that they've they've earned <laughs> as you said slashing his wrists yeah yes. no, it's a nice <laughs> gesture there those scars are yes. oh yeah yes. self-inflicted <laughs> wounds yes those wounds from from poor memory management yes. rust models those it's your foot explicitly yeah no i run i ran my code i crashed my machine i try and figure out what happened yes right. whereas in rust you get a compile error that tells you yeah what you tried to do isn't actually okay right this isn't falling out of scope yes. properly doesn't have enough memory yeah. available, like those kinds of things. Mm. Yeah, so Rust actually made it possible for us to even consider replacing Ascent with something that we build. So, yeah, I see it less as, it's more like it's a very smart C++. Yeah. Yeah, so there are tools in C++. Are you implying C++ is dumb? No, C++, you know, it's not just it's your foot, it's like it's everybody's foot. Yeah, it's true, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> Tricky. Well, I- yeah. yeah, I would say that um, C++ is a, is a smart language that relies on the cleverness of the people that yes. write it. Yeah, it's a disciplined language. Yes, and C even more so. Yeah, perhaps. Yes. So coming from um, a C++ background to Rust, you might start feeling more limited mm-hmm. in writing mm-hmm. it because it doesn't allow you to do things that um, you're pretty sure are okay in C++. For most of the times that you use them, Rust is more conservative. Yes. Does Rust have pointers? It does have pointers, yes. Really? It does. It just it doesn't make it easy for you to use them directly. So I guess you, that's a good thing. Yeah, that sounds like a really good idea. Yeah, yeah. so there's a there's a mitt gloves are off style of Rust. Like an unsafe work. mode kind yes, of? Yes, unsafe. Yeah. Um, that has special semantics around what you're allowed to do in unsafe mm-hmm. so that any safe code that calls it is guaranteed to still be correct. Okay. Yeah, so mm. that's a, a mode of Rust that a lot of folks coming from traditionally unsafe languages will try and reach for fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. But if you're coming from C Sharp, then um, I find Rust more accessible than a language like C++, mm-hmm. even if it's not easy to learn, because it takes these concepts that you have to learn over years of writing bad programs, and it puts them in front of your face, 
Mm. And so yes. now you can learn, you can learn about manual memory management and ownership and lifetimes concepts that you have to know and, and get your failures as compiler warnings rather than crashed machines yeah it mm. gives you an explicit framework or mental model to think about the safety of programs and mm. that comes back to c sharp as yeah. well because now you can think about ownership uh, in c sharp not just mm. as a memory management concept but as a a broader concept of who is responsible for this service or this mm -hmm. thing yeah yeah so does how does it interoperate with c sharp i mean they're, they're very different yeah, they are. They're totally different languages. Uh, the way they interoperate is using p-invoke. Oh, which, wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, geez, we're, we, just, we talked about dispose, finalize, and now p-invoke. we got the full calm deal going on <laughs> so here. So p-invoking Rust from C-sharp? That's what we do, yes. Okay. And yeah. Because you probably wouldn't do it the other way around, I imagine, right? <laughs> you can. Yeah. Um, but we don't need to. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. I mean, it's the lower-level stuff that Rust is doing. That makes it more appealing for the C sharp general purpose language. I'm just delighted that 2019 we have a legit P invoke case. I know yeah, it's really cool. You know, it's just it's, a, a kind of warm and fuzzy now. Like really, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, because so like, this archaic knowledge I have in my head might actually be valuable <laughs> in this year. Yeah, because I got into I got into programming C sharp kind of after the period the where sort of calm wave had gone through. Yeah, right? where right. C-sharp and, and the libraries around it were capable enough that we could just pretend that comm thing never happened. Mm -hmm. Now coming around again... <laughs> you know, he just, I, he just I, dropped that one, didn't he? I, you know, this it's 2019, yes. and I just removed the question from the 64-bit question right. about comm objects. Right. Because, you know... Because who would call those? Who, who would call those? What, what's a comm object? Right. People in the audience would be like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, so ignoring all of that... Um, that lineage for P invoke, yeah, because it, it's evolved a lot in that time, especially coming in with .NET Core now. Right, um, it's a it's a mechanism in .NET that allows us to call into what's called unmanaged code. Right, right, sure. And unmanaged code is anything, just basically anything outside of the CLR. Platform yeah. invoke. Yeah. Yes, platform yeah. invoke is what it is. Um, so when we call methods in .NET, we have our DLL and we have someone's NuGet package that we've pulled in, we right. call functions in that, those are all just directly uh, jitted and called within the .NET runtime. Yeah. It's just a function, we just call it. Yep. When we're calling unmanaged code, there's a little more work that we need to do mm. because we don't quite know whether it's going to conform to the, um, or execute in the way that the, the .NET runtime expects. Right, right. So when we encounter an unmanaged call like Rust, then we generate some code around it mm. to make sure that it can be executed safely, that the CLR knows that there's some outside code that's currently being yes. run. All the types have to be translated, yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. yeah, and what's called the application binary interface, or the ABI, needs mm -hmm. to be compatible. So that C Sharp and Rust have a shared understanding of, of the pieces. Mm. Yeah. So it means that introducing Rust into C Sharp isn't something that we can do in a real piecemeal fashion mm -hmm. um, where you might hear in, in other languages where, you know, I rewrote this function in Rust and now it's 10 times faster and it's so good. Mm. In C Sharp, if we do that, chances are the P invoke cost is going to dwarf the benefits that we got the, from the performance gain from Rust. Yeah. yeah. yeah On the other hand, sort of your Rust code is way more reliable than your old C++ code. You trust it better. So even if it doesn't give you a performance benefit, it does give you a confidence benefit. Yeah, that's right. And there's no wood around here that I can touch. Ah, top yeah. of your head, man. Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> uh, 
but, but since we rewrote our storage engine in Rust, we've we've had it running out in the wild for about twelve months now. This is not going to jinx you at all. No, no, not, no, no not at all. So <laughs> I would think that you know, the, if you're worried about the p invoke costs, you do more chunky calls than chatty things, right? So that's right. So you'd want things like signal processing, or you know, uh, looking through, you know, going through chunks of memory looking for things or pattern recognition or you know things that would are, are low level in nature you know would probably be best for that yeah so for us for instance every p invoke that we make is also effectively going to mean reading or writing bytes on disk right which means yeah the, um, the cost of doing that is going to dwarf any p invoke right, cost sure. mm-hmm. so we don't have to worry too much about it yeah yeah um, we also have to design our Rust API that C Sharp can consume in a way that we can basically perform multiple calls in one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we're reading data, for instance, we read a piece of data and we return not just that data, but some information about what's left so that we know whether we need to make another P invoke mm. to get any more information out. So we try and bundle up multiple calls together. Sure. And it affects the way like the kinds of code that you can you can write um, in a hybrid Rust C Sharp app. Mm-hmm. For us, but it works really effectively. Is there a P invoke in .NET Core? I guess it can't be, really. Uh, it is, yeah. Well, all right. No, it's there. Yeah. Yeah, P invoke is there. It's um, So if you're feeling brave and you want to go and actually have a look at, at the source of the, the core CLR, then there's a lot of legacy P invoke code that doesn't exist in .NET Core all around right. dealing with COM. Sure. Yeah. So it's a much slimmer P invoke. You yeah. Can, uh, if you're familiar with P invoke from having to deal with manage uh, with com objects, mm-hmm. then it's a it's a different thing today than it was then. Yeah. No kidding. And and it, and we've talked about this many times. Like you have this scar tissue mm. that is that automatically makes you repel from. You're gonna do what? <laughs> And it, and it's probably not applicable in what we're doing here. I mean, the, the thing the thing that's making me hesitate is an old memory, based yep. on behaviors that you're not bumping into. You you know we've crashed our computers many a time just making a bad call. A bad with PM the invoke, yeah. and the whole operating system locks up, and you're done. Well, so and com gets into a serious pout. Oh yeah. But this is not about P invoking the com. This is about P invoking to Rust. And it's about P invoking to Rust that you wrote. Yeah, so it's yeah. all your fault all the way down. Yeah, which is great. <laughs> As being, being able to blame Windows for your response. You can't do that. Yeah, funnily enough, owning your own bugs is is a, a great place to be. But yep. it does mean with .NET Core and with Rust, since they are cross-platform, like you could be running this hybrid on Linux. Yeah, which is exactly what we do. Nice. All right. Yes, so we moved from um, running C++ code that we didn't own on Windows to running Rust code that we do own on Windows nice. and Linux hmm. and Mac OS, even though we don't ship uh, artifacts for OS X. But I develop on OS X. Right. So yeah. I haven't actually opened Visual Studio in about two years. What's I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say that on what the are show you, It's fine. <laughs> what are your coding to- tools of choice then? Are you more a VS Code guy or a Vim guy? Like, what do you like? So I use a lot of the JetBrains tools. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. so, so JetBrains Rider has come a, a really long way. It's actually a really capable tool. I got nothing tool. bad to say about JetBrains. No, Those guys oh, make good stuff. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're great. No yeah. two ways about it. And our, our, our listener, the comment I read, was asked about Kotlin, too, which we've never had on the show. No, it's and true. And we probably should because they're, they're doing awesome things there, too. 
Hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're a great bunch. Yeah, and, and, and nothing bad to say about them at all. Rider, yeah, yeah for all the respect in the world. Yeah, and VS Code is another great tool that I use mm-hmm. um, because it's this naturally cross-language coding environment where you think of um, Rider, for instance, it's about writing C-sharp. Mm-hmm. C-line is another one I use that's about writing Rust. There's WebStorm for JavaScript. Um, GoLand for Go, like you mm-hmm. have these these boxes of tools that you use for each different language. Right. Mm-hmm. VS Code is this amazing little editor that allows you to work in all the languages. Whatever you want, yeah. right? And that's Studio too, game. but Studio not only brings this multi-language editor, but then an entire IDE. Yeah. But if that's too claustrophobic for you, well, okay, here's VS Code, any language you want, and bring your own debugger and, mm. and you know, other package managers and things to it that you need. Mm. Right. So. Uh, I, I appreciate that. And it's interesting that Microsoft thinks so differently about that stuff. They're so language agnostic where pretty much all other tooling is language bound. Yeah. Yeah, and so it means if you're building something like a, a hybrid app like we do, then there's this um, sharp context switching between working on the Rust side and working, and working on, on the C-sharp side. C-sharp side. Yeah. yeah. So from VS Code, you wouldn't even notice. Yeah, it's all together. Yeah. So... Uh, we talked a little bit about some of you know the ceremony that people might not be used to. Are there any other non-obvious ways that you can shoot yourself in the foot with Rust? Hmm. How does it bite you? So most of the ways that Rust can bite you, it tries to bite at compile time rather than at runtime. Got it. So one example. So you're going to get you're frustrated because you can't compile, not frustrated because it blew up in the field. Yes, hmm. that's right. Yeah, uh, and uh, I like that. <laughs> I, th- I think yeah, on one of your previous shows, you were talking about um, solving the problem of airline baggage taking too long by making oh, right. the walkway longer. Right. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if you... It's just talking about We talked about it again today. This morning <laughs> at breakfast, we <laughs> yeah. revisited that story. Yeah. yeah, and so... Perceived weight versus actual weight. <laughs> right. Yeah, and so when you have code that's blowing up at runtime, there's this perceived weight between it. Right. So you run the thing, you see that most of it works, and mm. then it blows up, whereas with Rust, it, it blows up, you change it again, it immediately blows up again. Right. And that can be a, a rather... No, no, I can see you being seriously frustrated because you can't get the dang thing to compile. Yeah. Right. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, the, you're gratified because it compiled, but it bites you three days later in a crash that you have no explanation for. That's not that much better. I think I'd rather be frustrated up front than frustrated later. You know, yeah. there's another version of that story about the, uh, you know, the, the airline making the walk from jetway to the baggage claim longer mm-hmm. uh, and that is there was a supposedly a billions and billions of dollars proposed to make a faster railroad from here to there or whatever and it turned out that a much cheaper alternative would be to give everybody free stinky fast Wi-Fi and pour everybody a dumb parent young you know give everybody free drinks and free champagne and make their commute much more pleasant so then they wouldn't have to they worry about it. They don't it care how long it is. Yeah. Right? Keep them distracted. Keep them happy. Right. Yeah. So it's just a way to shift the, what you're looking at. You know, it's, it's yeah. your compile so, time versus your runtime. And that, that's a thing that I think a lot of people first coming into Rust find tricky is that it, it doesn't give you this um, deferred kind of feeling of gratitude like sure. things are okay today mm-hmm. but they're not going to be okay tomorrow right. well the point mm-hmm. being if the code, rust code compiles it's probably going to work yes yeah. i mean it may if not it do compiles, what you wanted it to runs. do but 
it's going to run. Oh, yeah. Well, speaking of that, is test-driven Rust a thing? Do you need to do unit tests when you have such a hip compiler? Yeah, so the kinds of unit tests that you write in Rust are a little bit different. More mm -hmm. like f uh, functional tests? Yeah, so Rust has testing baked into the language. Interesting. Yeah, wow. so, you know, in C Sharp, we, we write our... Um, one project that has our implementation. Mm -hmm. We have another test project that tests it. Mm -hmm. We can only test the things at the surface or sometimes we feel like we have to make things public so, just so that we can see them in our tests. Yep. Rust tests are in line with the source. Interesting. Yeah, so... Yeah, really. It is interesting and it's a pattern that becomes quite compelling after a while. Well, you can't separate the two then or it's not easy to separate the two. Yeah. Right. It's super easy in, a, in the split project model to separate the test library from the project. I'm really trying to wrap my mind around how you would inline tests. So they're functions with a little attribute on them that say test. And oh, then okay. Rust finds those when you're running its um, compiler in test mode. And it runs those tests. And so you can test internal implementation details. Hmm. And a lot of the kinds of testing that you do in Rust, rather than being what happens if I pass null to this method, yeah. are more functional style tests, testing little little individual right. components. Mm -hmm. I pass these things in, I should get that back. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than, does it blow up right. in this way, or does it blow up in this way? Yeah, mm -hmm. I get Depending it. Depending on what's nulls. Uh, what about parallelism? So that's a really good point. Um, Rust captures parallelism through its type system, as well as lifetimes. So you declare a type that's naturally parallel? So it... Or asynchronous? It, yeah, so Rust mm -hmm. figures out at compile time whether the data that you're working with is thread safe. Okay. If it's thread safe, it lets you use it concurrently. If mm -hmm. it's not thread safe, wow. then you can't. And now that's a type system. Yes. That's a smart compiler right there, man. It's a really clever idea. It's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, so when in .NET, for instance, we don't think too much about concurrency that much. Yes, no. we do. Yeah. <laughs> we, um, we have a class and it has some state on it. And maybe we'll just be able to access that from various threads that are going along. Maybe right. we have a service that's shared between requests again. We just call it. It's fine. It'll let us do that. Yep. Well, who Even uses if it's threads anymore in C Sharp? We just call it async await. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's, uh, that's my Rust coming in, where Rust doesn't sure. have um, yeah. a thread pool built into the, the runtime. Mm. When you create a thread in Rust, it, it is a real thread. Right. Okay. Yeah, so... Yeah, so you seem a little closer to the metal with Rust. Like I said, it's like a, a very smart C++ compiler. Yeah, yeah, so you are closer to the metal. And so what Rust does is, um, at compile time, it checks whether the types that you're trying to use concurrently are actually mm -hmm. valid to use um, concurrently. If it's mm. not, it'll give you more compile errors. Right. Mm. Otherwise, it'll run and you won't have any data races. So you won't have this case where you're reading a value while someone is writing to That's it. so mm -hmm. smart. Yeah. So you can use threads without worrying about those edge cases where you have race conditions. That's right. And that, that's totally a thing. Like in C++ and C and C Sharp, even if you're using threads directly, mm -hmm. you can have the situation where your code is going to run fine 999,999 times out of a million, but that one in a million chance that you're going to have a race condition. Mm, it's going to eat its head. Yeah, so and it totally we actually lets you compile that. We actually had a bug in the C sharp side of our code base where we had a race condition. We had a race condition in 
uh, user session list, mm -hmm. which seems like a really bad place to have that. Yeah, no. yeah. Not that there's a lot of good places to race conditions. Yeah, no, no, yeah. there are only good places, but <laughs> sure. that's an especially bad place. Where it, took, it, it existed, this bug, for about four years. Wow. And it wasn't until we refactored some completely unrelated code um, for a new release that it became possible for that contention to exist that the bug surfaced itself mm. and we had to fix it. And that's a, right. that's a bug that we couldn't write in Rust. It wouldn't hmm. be okay for us to go four years having this bug existing in the wild and then having right. it blow up because that's what bugs tend to do. We surface sure. them through refactoring. Wow. Yeah. Rust simply won't compile it in the first place. Right. Wow. So Which, you can have that bug, you just can't ship that bug. You just can't compile that bug. It won't run if it's yeah. got bugs. It, it won't build. Yeah. Yeah. So Rust, because it puts all of these um, concepts in your face up front, it, it feels like you have to work and think a lot harder than you otherwise would to write, write programs in Rust, but those programs are much more robust. So another yeah. case where people um, may struggle with Rust is where if you need something like shared ownership, mm -hmm. which we get for free in .NET, mm. you have to create this um, reference counter type. If you want to make a value safe to use concurrently when it's not on its own, you have to use a mutex. And that feels like, it feels like you're accepting or having to hack around something that you think should work sort of out of the box mm -hmm. for you. Yeah. But what Rust is really doing in those cases is um, pushing you towards safer ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. So rather than simply going gung-ho with what you think is probably good enough, rather than seeing those additional steps that you have to go through to make the program you want to write work hmm. as, um, as hacks or as, um, what would I call them? Workarounds? Yeah, as workarounds. They're pushing you towards writing safer software. Yeah, write it the yeah. right way. Yeah. That's great. Mm, I is, like that. Is there anything that the compiler won't catch that will cause a runtime bug? So memory leaks is an example of something that the compiler won't technically catch for you. Yeah, because okay. it's not really an error. Because it has to until run. Until the machine is actually constrained. Yeah, yeah. we had this, um, this, this big discussion right before Rust was going to ship its 1.0. Because you were also working with the Rust team. Yeah. Besides building stuff in Rust. Yeah, so I work on the, um, the libraries team. So there's right. a standard library, and there's all these little satellites around it mm -hmm. of um, fundamental but not standard library-esque projects. Mm -hmm. um, Rust keeps its standard library as small as it possibly can, cool. and it pushes everything else outside. Right, so you sort of pick up the bits and pieces that you need. Yeah. Yeah, yeah nice. rather than um, having, than having a, it's in the box style. Yeah, so it's a, it's a, a drawer knives versus a Swiss Army knife. Yeah, yeah. You'll get the right. knife you need. Don't carry them all. Yep. So where did Rust come from? And what's the significance of the name? So Rust came out of Mozilla Research. Okay. They... Um, from the people who brought you JavaScript. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they used... Uh, they created Rust because writing or maintaining a... I don't even know how big Firefox is. It's, it's massive. Massive. Yeah. Massive C++ code mm -hmm. base is really tricky. Mm-hmm. So they came up with Rust uh, and used it to build an alternative experimental browser engine called Servo, mm -hmm. which is able to take advantage of 
your multi-core computer much better yeah. than Firefox can because they feel more confident that the code they write in Rust is going to behave correctly. Wow, yeah. nice. And, and we've so all got multiple cores. Out. Yeah, yeah, and everything's got multiple cores, mm -hmm. even if those cores are really slow. Yeah. Everything. Yeah. I'm pretty sure my phone has multiple cores. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, right. They're all angry with you, but yeah, you have multiple yeah, cores. Yeah, my sneakers <laughs> almost have multiple cores. <laughs> this can of beans has multiple <laughs> cores. Oh, well, that's kind of where we lose the cores. <laughs> log servers don't have multiple cores. <laughs> um, well, yeah, so the, there's um, a little history of, of the name. Um, you might think that Rust is like, you know, it's close to the metal, so it, it's Rust. Right. Mm. Uh, and its logo kind of looks like a gear. Right. Supposedly, it's actually a fungus. Oh, there is rust is a term for a fungus, a fungal invasion of certain kinds of plants, like trees. Yeah, can get rust. Okay. Yeah, so supposedly yeah. that's a history of the name. Mm. Okay. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah a, I like I'm, to equate a product that helps people as a fungal infection. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, where can we go to learn more about it and maybe take some tutorials and all of that stuff? So the best place to start will be going to rust-lang.org. Mm -hmm. That's rust-lang.org. Uh, that will help you get started. Rust has great documentation. Um, they prize documentation above just about all else. Wow. So it's got language support for markdown docs. Nice. Things yeah, like, I that. like that. So there's docs. There's a book, a great book written by Steve Klabnik and Carol Nichols. You can read it online for free or you can buy a dead tree copy. Wow. There's Rust by example. Um, all of this stuff is accessible through the Rust Lang website to help Great. you get started with the language. So they take that onboarding experience uh, nice. really seriously in Rust because it, it does throw a lot at you up front. Wow. Excellent. Ashley, thank you for uh, spending this hour with us. It's been great. No problem. Thanks for having me. You bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the MC.